Hey friends, before we get to this week's episode, we have a couple of great things coming up this month at Redemption Hill that we want to share with you. All the details for these you can find on the website that's linked in the show notes. First, we have All Be Home for Christmas, a hand-spun, homemade family Christmas show. This will be December 22nd at the Basque Center downtown at 6 p.m. This event is sponsored by Boise Turnkey Real Estate, and all the proceeds will go to support Leap Housing. You can bring your whole family and you can RSVP at the Facebook event, also linked in the show notes. This year, we'll be doing two Christmas Eve services in conjunction with Discovery Church. Those will take place at 3.30 p.m. and 5 p.m. on Christmas Eve. We hope to see you there. Now, enjoy today's episode. Good morning, Redemption Hill. I am Bob. I'm one of the elders of our community. And uh, today for Advent, we are talking about the wise men, the Magi. But as we start today, I want you to think about something that you are trying to change in your life. What change do you hope that 2023 brings? Not in your circumstances, but in your person, in your character. And now let me ask, why is change so hard? Why can't we just decide to change something? And having decided, change. As interesting as a discussion on change is, I'm sure some of you are wondering what that has to do with Christmas. Good question. I believe that change has everything to do with worship. And worship has everything to do with Christmas. Or maybe I should say Christmas has everything to do with worship. If you have a Bible, and it would be great if uh, you did and you could follow along, but if not, that's okay. Look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. They say, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. So I'm, I'm sure that you've heard this story once or twice, right? Here's uh, a little bit of background. Bethlehem is a small town about five miles outside of Jerusalem, and the setting that Matthew gives us is important. Matthew 1 shows Jesus's right to be the king of Israel through his lineage, through being in a direct line from David. And Matthew 2 shows his kingship by showing the antagonism that the usurper, the false king Herod, had towards him, towards Jesus. Herod was an Edomite, a descendant of Esau, not a descendant of Jacob, not Jewish. He'd been placed on the throne of Israel by the Roman conquerors, and he he had tried to appease the Jews by throwing massive amounts of money into a building project around the temple. The Wailing Wall in Jerusalem is a remnant of what was built by Herod. But most of Israel still hated him, and he had a very loose grip on power. He was paranoid enough that he, he even killed members of his own family to hold on to his kingship. And so when the wise men arrive and ask about someone born king of the Jews, 
verses three through seven, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, and he asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. The wise men, magi in, in Greek, the same word that we get magician from. They were from the, the priestly political class of Parthians who lived in the East. They were astrologers and astronomers, men who practiced magic and collected wisdom and exerted great influence in the Medo-Persian and Babylonian empires. So how did they, how would they possibly know about and know to look for and anticipate Jesus, the Jewish Messiah? Well, that's easy. A Jewish exile named Daniel, who had once been one of them hundreds of years earlier, had told them. And so they watched and they waited for hundreds of years until they saw a sign in the sky that told them that the time was now. Here was the Messiah. And they traveled all the way to Jerusalem and started right at the top, Herod, the king, asking, where is the one born king of the Jews? We have come to worship him. I love that these magi, these astrologer magicians, they didn't come as tourists, as curious onlookers, or even as investigating scholars. They may have had questions, but that's not primarily why they were there. They may, may even have had some political curiosity as Parthians, since it was the Parthians that ruled Palestine until the Romans kicked them out and installed Herod as king. But none of that was primary. They were first and foremost there as worshipers. And this is one of the most interesting things about the Advent story, whether we're talking about Jewish shepherds or pagan magicians or angels from heaven, what they do when they encounter the newborn Messiah is this, they worship him. Verses eight through 11, then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, a gift for royalty, frankincense, a gift for deity, and myrrh, a traditional burial spice. I think these wise men knew more about Jesus and his mission than maybe we think they did. So they worship him. Herod says, I'd like to worship him too, but that's not really what he wants. Verse 12, when it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. The rest of the chapter records that Herod is so threatened by this child king and the worship being given him that in an effort to kill him, he orders that all babies two and under living around Bethlehem be slaughtered. In a town that size, small, 
probably between 15 and 30 children in all. But Jesus isn't there. Joseph has been warned. He has heard from God too, and they've escaped. So why is Herod so threatened? And why is the first thing Matthew tells us about Jesus after he is born, that people come to worship him? Is worship really the active ingredient in this story? Yeah, I, I think it is. In fact, I think it's the active ingredient in our lives. I may be alone in this, but um, I, I kind of like the clash that happens every Christmas. You know, the, the Christmas wars between commercialization and Christ, or, or at least between their advocates, between the materialism and the, the spiritual aspects of the season, like the Jesus-Santa smackdown. As it were, every year we talk about Christmas as though the real meaning is found in either the presents and gifts and buying or, and giving or getting, or in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And here's what I'm realizing. The real meaning of Christmas isn't about one or the other of those things. It's about both of them and the inevitable conflict they will be in. Christmas, American Christmas in particular, captures perfectly year after year the battle that takes place at the center of our souls. We all worship something. And the things we worship, the things we, we derive peace and meaning and satisfaction from, be it our houses, our money, our possessions, our retirement accounts, all of it, they occupy space in our hearts space they are unwilling to give up to anything else, least of all, a baby in a manger. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, expect conflict, because Jesus claims the worship that all those other things want. Martin Luther and others have said there's a reason why the first commandment is the first commandment. It's because you can't break any of the others without first breaking that one. The first commandment says, you will have no other gods before me. And when I have broken commandments two through 10, it's only because I first broken the first, because something else has become a God to me. For instance, if, if I lie, it's because I've made a little God out of someone's approval. I care more about what you think of me than what God thinks of me. And so I bend the truth. If I steal, it's because something has held out to me the promise of happiness, and I want it, and so I take it, caring more about my desires or that, that material thing than about God. We can even take this a step further. Underneath every sin is idolatry in general, and underneath it all always is some kind of self-salvation project. Whenever I make something more important than God in my life, I am, in a sense, making that thing my functional savior. I'm wanting and depending on something so much, it is to me like a savior, my own personal Jesus. And that means that obeying the, command, the first commandment and believing the gospel are the same thing. In other words, whether I call it believing the good news that God himself has come to rescue and renew me and all of creation through the work of Jesus on my behalf, and that God alone can and does save me, or I call it having no other gods before God, it's the same thing. 
Christmas is the most offensive holiday because it tells us something that none of us want to hear, that we need a savior. Christmas, the first commandment, the gospel, they all tell me the same thing. I can't save myself and nothing but God can save me. Now listen to this, because this is where we, we circle back to the question we started with this morning. If all of this is true, then it doesn't matter what we say we worship. What we actually worship is what matters. Your heart is captured by something, money, a particular self-image, whatever. It owns you and you dwell on it and meditate on it and adore it more than God. And if all of that is true, then the only way anyone ever really changes, at least for the better, is through worship. Let me explain. If I say that I understand the gospel and I love God, and yet my heart is captured consistently by other things, I'm not, at least to that extent, really worshiping God. Your God, your Savior is whatever has captured your heart, whatever you're looking to to make you happy. And I'm sad to say that my idols in my life have been everything from relationships and marriage to cars to even iPhones and computers. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. The reason why change is so hard is partly because the things that we'd like to change in our lives put up such a fight. The good news of Jesus is bad news for all the false gods in our lives. When the real king shows up, the false king panics. And unfortunately, as this story shows, false gods, false kings, they don't go easily. So here's what it comes down to. Real change only happens when we begin to more fully obey that first commandment. You can phrase it negatively as when we stop pursuing, falling down to false idols, worshiping them, or you could put it positively. When we like those in this story, start worshiping Jesus. We're coming up on a new year, a time when we resolve to change and to grow, to stop doing certain things and start doing other things. And at the heart of all of those questions is a question of worship. I'll never, for instance, be able to stop looking to food for my comfort and security until I start looking to Christ. First, I need, and you probably need as well, to worship God better, to recognize that when I sin, when I am unable to change, it's not just, it's not a failure of will, it's a failure of worship. My heart has gotten attached to something, and the only way to unattach it from those things is to attach it to God. And to the extent that I fail to attach it to God, I will be unable to kick whatever sins are really hanging on in my life, or I will simply trade them for other sins, maybe less blatant or more societally acceptable ones, but sin nonetheless. When I struggle, the answer is not try harder. It's believe the gospel. Believe that nothing but Jesus can really ultimately save me. Figure out what is my idol here. Turn away from it and really, truly worship Jesus. Secondly, 
as a community, Redemption Hill, can you begin to see why worship matters? Why what we bring to not only our individual time spent with God, but our corporate time as well is so vital? We can really say that in worshiping, we are believing the gospel. And when our worship is half-hearted, there are different things going on than simply, well, I don't feel like singing today, or the discussion doesn't really grab me, or spending time with God is, is kind of hard. Much deeper. When we worship, we change. And when we worship Jesus, false gods tremble. The kings and kingdoms of this world demand our attention, our hearts, our worship. And worst of all, they demand our sacrifice. But Jesus has come, the true king, as a sacrifice. The one who comes to bring us life, to free us, to make us whole. And the real question of Christmas, the one behind the question of the meaning of Christmas and what you will or won't change this next year is this. What or who will you worship? Have a great Christmas, guys. Thanks again for listening. Make sure to subscribe to get the weekly episodes in your podcast feed. You can find out more on how to get connected with Redemption Hill at redemptionboise.org connection, where you can fill out the Connect card and start your journey today. For regular encouragement throughout the week, follow us on Instagram at redemptionboise. We are so glad you're here and are excited to accompany you in your story with God. We hope to see you soon.